0: and my brother Dr. Steven Ned for this week's body chat about blood sugar conditions including diabetes. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Stevenette as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. All right. So we're going to be talking about blood sugar. It's not my favorite dessert, but it's something that's important in people's health. So why don't we start off with just a simple definition of diabetes? All right.
1: Diabetes is a chronic disease in which the body's ability to produce or respond to the hormone insulin, which is made by the pancreas, is impaired. And this results in elevated levels of blood sugar called glucose in the blood and urine. So the complete name for standard diabetes is diabetes mellitus. And as of the year 2015, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 30.3 million Americans have diabetes, which is just under 10% of the population. It's a lot. Yeah. And in 2015, an estimated 1.5 million new cases of diabetes were diagnosed among people ages 18 and older. Now, almost one in four adults that have diabetes, which is about 7.2 million Americans, didn't know that they had it. And the rates of uh, diagnosed diabetes increases with age. So 4% of adults ages 18 to 44 had diabetes. About four times the amount, uh, or 17% of adults in the 45 to 64 age group have diabetes, and adults in the 65 and older group were diabetic about 25% of
0: the time. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, what are the two main types of diabetes, and what are the differences between them? Well, there's actually
1: more than two types of diabetes, but type 1 and type 2 are the most common, and we'll cover the others a little later. Okay. Okay. Now, diabetes type 1, uh, this is a chronic condition in which the pancreas produces very little or no insulin, resulting in very high blood sugar levels. Mm-hmm. And it used to be called insulin-dependent diabetes and juvenile diabetes because it's typically initially diagnosed in children, teens, and young adults. Right. But today, there are more adults who have type 1 diabetes than children, according to the American Diabetes Association. Oh, really? hmm Okay. So, symptoms associated with type 1 diabetes include increased thirst, frequent urination, hunger, fatigue, and blurred vision. Right. Now, diabetes type 2, this is also a chronic condition in which either the pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin or the body resists insulin, and this is called insulin resistance. Okay. It was once known as non-insulin-dependent diabetes or adult-onset diabetes. Okay, right. Yeah, but these are inaccurate because insulin is often used in the management of type 2 diabetes, and this condition is increasingly
0: diagnosed in young people now. Is it really? hmm Because it used to be just type 1 for the juvenile diabetes that was found in children. Right. Okay.
1: So, its typical symptoms are identical to type 1 diabetes, which, again, are increased thirst, frequent urination, hunger, fatigue, and blurred vision. Okay. Now, the biggest differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes are that diabetes type 2 is way more common than type 1. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 30 million Americans have diabetes, which is about 1 in 10, and 90 to 95% of them have type 2 diabetes. Okay. Again, type 1 typically begins in childhood, whereas type 2 typically begins after age 40. Right. Right. And both types can result from reduced insulin production, but only type two can occur due to insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Another difference between the two is that type two can easily be prevented, whereas type one is much tougher to prevent. Right. And in addition, type one is an autoimmune condition, whereas type two is more of a developmental disorder due to dietary and lifestyle factors.
0: Right. Okay. Now, does anyone know what causes type one diabetes? Yeah, again, type 1 diabetes is caused by an autoimmune
1: reaction in which the body attacks itself by mistake. And we covered this topic in great detail on our autoimmune disorder podcast number 24. That's correct. Included in that podcast was the autoimmune scenario I talked about where there's three viruses, including an influenza A virus that can cause type 1 diabetes because each of these viruses look just like the cells of the pancreas that Mm. produce insulin. And this molecular mimicry that we called it, can trigger an autoimmune response in susceptible people. Right. So whether it's due to one of these viruses or another source, the body specifically destroys the cells in the pancreas that make insulin called beta cells. And this process can go on for months or even years before any symptoms actually appear. Okay. Insulin, by the way, is a hormone that allows blood sugar to enter the cells in your body where it can be used for energy. Exactly. Yeah, and so without insulin, blood sugar can't get into the cells, and it builds up in the bloodstream, causing all kinds of damage.
0: So that's the raised blood sugar levels that people are monitoring with the machines that take like a minute amount of blood, or I think some of them these days don't even prick the skin. Yeah, we're going to talk about
1: the various ones later Okay, that are out there. Yeah. So there's short-term and long-term complications from type 1 diabetes. I thought I'd cover those. Okay, So, the short-term complications include, believe it or not, hypoglycemia, which we'll go over in more detail later on. That's kind of the opposite of diabetes where your blood sugar is too low. Right. And then there's a a condition called diabetic ketoacidosis, and this is a serious and potentially life-threatening complication of diabetes due to the body producing an extremely high level of what are called ketones. Mm -hmm. These are a type of fatty acids, and this is due to simply a lack of insulin. And it results in a severe
0: electrolyte imbalance and dehydration. All right. And is that different from what people are doing regarding certain diets? I don't know if you've heard of it. A lot of people are doing like a ketone diet or a ketosis diet. Yeah,
1: that's a little bit different. But um, they're doing that to burn fat more than sugar. And it doesn't get to the point where it's affecting your blood levels. That's more in
0: various other parts of the body. Okay. So, it's a very minor version and it's not affecting the blood levels. Right. Okay. And this one is? Big time. Okay. It makes the blood way too acid, which is very serious.
1: Okay. So, the long-term complications include if it can affect the smaller blood vessels of the body, especially in the eyes leading to cataracts or what's called diabetic retinopathy. Mm-hmm. It can also affect the kidneys and lead to kidney failure due to What's called diabetic nephropathy, and that ends up requiring dialysis or even a kidney transplant. Okay. And then if it affects the nerves, then you end up with a condition called diabetic neuropathy. Okay. So the larger blood vessels of the body can lead to plaque buildup, eventually leading to a heart attack. Mm. And we've gone over artery plaque buildup in previous podcasts, including the recent podcast number 43 on clotting and bleeding. Right. And there we learned the importance of taking vitamin D3 along with K2 in addition to calcium to prevent calcium from building up inside the arteries. Good. Yeah. So I wanted to just stress that again. Now going on to type 2 diabetes, according to mainstream medicine,
0: it's due to people being fat and lazy. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a lot of things with mainstream medicine where they're very evaluative about people and their habits and that doesn't really isolate what's causing things. Yeah. So, what
1: is it caused by? Okay. Well, these are two of the more common causes of diabetes, you know, obesity and lack of physical exercise. But Mm -hmm. if anyone's lazy, it's medical experts that use this one-size-fits-all explanation because there's plenty of research out there now that proves that diabetes is not primarily a disease of behavior, but rather it's more so an environmental illness. Okay. So there's an excellent reference for this that I looked at this week, and it's a book called Diabetes, Sugar-Coated Crisis, Who Gets It, Who Profits, and How to Stop It. And it was actually written by a registered nurse, David Sparrow, S-P-E-R-O. Okay. And he concludes that type 2 diabetes is a social disease caused by environments high in stress and sugar and low in opportunities to move or to feel good about ourselves not the typical blame put only on our genes or behavior. Okay. So he's got the uh, top 10 list of environmental causes, and I thought I'd name them. All right, go ahead. So they include refined foods, genetics. So he does acknowledge that genes have something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Intestinal bacteria. So we get back into the gut microbiome. So he acknowledges that, which is great, because that's something that even Dr. Gundry recognizes. Right. Right. Next one would be poor physical conditioning, mm-hmm. stress, mm-hmm. trauma, mm-hmm. Uh, fat, especially located in the abdomen, liver, and pancreas. Okay. Poor sleep. Mm-hmm. And here's a big one: environmental chemicals. And these are things including dioxins, air pollution, pesticides, plastics called phthalates, which we've gone over in our, one of our previous episodes. I think that was our detoxification episode. Right. And flame retardants in furniture, they have a huge impact on causing diabetes. That's interesting. That's right. And obese people with low levels of these chemicals do not get more diabetes than thin people. And one study found that people with high levels of these chemicals in their bodies had a 37 times higher rate of diabetes. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So then the final one that he acknowledges is insulin deficiency. As a
0: cause of diabetes type 2? One of the, yeah, one of the top 10 causes. Okay. So then, what is the medical approach to type 1 diabetes? Because I actually have a friend whose daughter, who's like, I think she's 10 or 12, has type 1 diabetes. And that he's really concerned about her because, you know, he's actually been around her when she starts crashing because of her blood sugar level going too high. But he helps raise funds for, The different charities that deal with that but my understanding is there's no way of curing it or handling it other than just monitoring the blood sugar level and making sure that it doesn't crash and having a candy bar or orange nearby so what is the real medical approach to type 1 diabetes well
1: you know i thought the same thing too and during research this week i found out some awesome information i'm really happy to share with everyone here great so, again, type 1, first and foremost, the way to handle it is to take insulin daily, either through injections or using what's called an insulin pump, which is programmed to dispense specific amounts of rapid-acting insulin automatically. Right. So, I'll just go into a little bit of detail because I found this fascinating. Okay. So, what you do is you program the insulin pump for each meal based on the amount of carbohydrates that you eat along with your current blood sugar level. Mm-hmm. So, you also monitor your blood sugar level at home using what's called a glucurometer or glucose meter, which is a simple device that you apply a drop of blood to in order to get an accurate blood sugar reading. Right. Well, there's actually another more advanced method, and it's called continuous glucose monitoring, in which you have your glucose readings tested in real time as often as every five minutes or monitored over a period of time. And this typically includes a small sensor that measures glucose levels that's inserted just underneath the skin. Okay. And then there's a transmitter that fits onto the sensor and that sends data wirelessly to your display device. A display device can either be your smartphone or a separate display receiver. I'm sure that
0: Apple Watch has got something set up with them for that. If they don't, they will.
1: Yeah. So the goal in monitoring one's blood sugar levels is to keep them as close to normal as possible to delay or prevent complications like it going up too high or too low. Mm-hmm. So generally, the goal is to keep the daytime blood sugar levels before meals between 80 and 130 and the after meal numbers no higher than 180 two hours after eating. Okay. The male Clinic also recommends having your A1C levels tested regularly too. A1C determines your average blood sugar level for the past two to three months. And what this specifically measures is the percentage of blood sugar that's attached to the oxygen-carrying protein in your red blood cells called hemoglobin. Right. So the higher your blood sugar levels are, the more hemoglobin you'll have with sugar attached. Hmm. Yeah. So an A1C level of 6.5% or higher on two separate tests indicates that you have Diabetes. Okay. And if you've been diagnosed with diabetes, the American Diabetes Association generally recommends that your A1C levels should stay below 7%. And that translates to an estimated average glucose level of 154 milligrams per deciliter. Okay. So A1C testing is actually a better indicator of how well your diabetes treatment plan is working in comparison to doing repeated daily blood sugar tests. Really? Okay. Yeah. So if your A1C goes up, then you need to look at changing your insulin regimen, your meal
0: plan, or both. So this looks like it's not more of an overall evaluation or monitoring on a longer-term basis. That's
1: correct. And we can also talk about food too. That is another part of the recommended treatment plan. And what they recommend is healthy, low-refined carbohydrate meals. And in particular, and this is according to the Mayo Clinic, Low-fat, high-fiber foods like fruits, vegetables, and grains, and fewer animal products. Mm -hmm. Okay. They recommend that you create a meal plan with a dietitian so you can determine the amount of carbohydrates you consume per meal so that you can count them accurately to determine how much insulin you'll need. So that's a smart thing to do. Yes. And they also recommend
0: exercising regularly and maintaining a healthy weight. That sounds smart. Right. So that's for type one diabetes. What about for type two diabetes? Well, for type two, the
1: American Diabetes Association has a comprehensive treatment plan that came out this year, but I'm not going to go through it because it would probably take an hour or longer to do so. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this one is designed for doctors that treat this. so I'm not going to bore everyone with the endless details because I think we'd all fall asleep trying to plow through all of it. Okay. So they have some type of
0: a plan that people have to follow.
1: Yeah, and so instead, I'll just give a simpler medical approach. Okay. So the diet is basically the same as the one for type 1. Again, low-fat, high-fiber foods, including fruits, vegetables, and grains, fewer animal products, refined carbohydrates, and sweets. Mm -hmm. And then they recommend regular exercise, including 30 minutes of aerobic exercise for five days a week, optimally. Okay. Okay. And blood sugar monitoring is done less frequently with type two than type one, unless you're taking insulin. Mm. So normally you would check it from time to time, according to your doctor's recommendation. Okay. Now the biggest difference is medications. Sometimes medications aren't necessary, especially when you're able to control your blood sugar with diet and exercise alone. That's the ideal scene and should be a top goal. I mean, the ultimate goal is to overcome this condition altogether. Right. And before trying insulin, there are numerous other medications that can be tried with metformin normally being the one tried first. Metformin helps to improve the sensitivity of your body tissues to insulin so that your body uses insulin more effectively. Okay. Plus, it also lowers glucose production in the liver. It still may not lower blood sugar on its own, so lifestyle changes like more exercise and weight loss should be recommended too. Okay. And unfortunately, like all drugs, metformin comes with quite a few side effects. Of course. And the most common are nausea and vomiting, which usually go away when the body gets used to
2: metformin. Mm.
1: Okay. But other side effects include digestive complaints like diarrhea, constipation, gas, bloating, heartburn, as well as physical weakness, muscle pain, upper respiratory infections, low blood sugar, and low levels of
0: vitamin B12. Okay. All right. So those are the different medical approaches. What alternative treatments, if any, can help with a type 1 diabetes situation? You know, before I did my research this week, I was just going to assume there
1: really is nothing, but I'm really stoked to give this information now. Great. So there's actually several things that can be done. The first is prevention, and there's several things to consider here. Let's start with vitamin D. I recommend a reference for this, which I'm going to summarize It's an article from Dr. Joseph Mercola called Five Reasons Why Type 1 Diabetes is on the Rise. Okay. We'll definitely have to give a link to that in our notes.
0: Yeah, you'll have to send that to me. I will.
1: So, Dr. Mercola points out in this article that one of the world's leading researchers on vitamin D found that children receiving vitamin D supplementation from age one on had an 80% decreased risk of developing type 1 diabetes. Wow! Yeah. Awesome. He also emphasized a study which found that over 87% of all newborns and over 67% of all mothers had vitamin D levels lower than 20 nanograms per milliliter, which is a severe deficiency state. Wow. So, this is likely due to current recommended guidelines for pregnant women to consume just 200 to 400 IUs of vitamin D per day. And that's just way too low. Really? Yeah. I mean, some studies showed that those levels should be 10 times higher. At least. Yeah. And one of them compared women who are at least 12 weeks pregnant taking 400, 2,000, or 4,000 IUs of vitamin D a day.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, for people that don't know, IUs are international units, and that is a way of measuring certain types of liquid vitamins. As opposed to
1: milligrams for the pills. Correct. Yeah. Now, those who took the highest amount, which was 4,000 international units a day, were the least likely to go into labor early, give birth prematurely, or develop infections. Hmm. So it was great all the way across the boards. Wow, it sounds that way. Mm -hmm. And based on current research, Dr. McCullough put together a chart for recommended vitamin D levels for each age group. So I thought I'd give that to everybody because this applies to everybody. Excellent. People below the age of five should take 35 units per pound per day. So, in other words, if a child weighs 20 pounds, they would take 700 units a day. That's 20 times 35. hmm If they're in the age group of 5 to 10, they should be taking 2,500 units a day. Okay. Ages 18 to 30 should be 5,000 units a day. Mm-hmm. And pregnant women should also take 5,000 units a day, which is okay. more than 10 times the amount of the 200 to 400 recommended. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He also warned that the only way to know your vitamin D levels is to test your blood because you might need as much as four to five times the recommended amounts. And that article also includes a chart with the ideal blood levels, and this applies to children, adolescents, adults, and seniors. Okay. Okay. So he considers deficiency to be below 50 nanograms per deciliter, with below 20, again, being seriously deficient. Okay. And when it gets down that low, but, uh, below 20, that can also increase your risk for cancer and other autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis.
0: That's good to know. hmm
1: So the optimal range is 50 to 70. When you get your blood test for vitamin D, it says normal is 30 and above.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow! just because that's normal doesn't mean it's optimal. So optimal is actually 50 to 70. Okay. And if you're treating cancer or heart disease, you should aim for 70 to 100. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. So over 100 is considered excessive. Okay. Now, the next thing I wanted to cover was vaccines. And there's evidence that the growing number of autoimmune diseases plaguing children, including type 1 diabetes, may be related to the increased number of vaccines they receive. Okay. So we went over this in the vaccination and immunization podcast, number 36. Right. Remember, I covered the fact that from 1963 to 1988, the vaccine schedule recommendation for children was 24 vaccines. Mm -hmm. But over the last 30 years, that number has tripled to now 70. Right. So there's been a 17-fold increase in type 1 diabetes in children since the 1950s. It was one in 7,100 children in the 1950s, and now it's one in 400. Wow. Yeah, And this correlates with the rise in vaccines. Yep. Sounds like it. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing is that we also covered the importance of gut health and its relationship with autoimmune conditions in our autoimmune conditions podcast number 24, mm-hmm. as well as our leaky gut podcast number 26 and our plant paradox podcast number 28. Right. So in the autoimmune conditions podcast, we included a medical journal article that went over the various chronic diseases that have increased at the same rate as the usage in GMO crops, specifically corn and soy, with the herbicide chemical glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. Mm -hmm. Uh, That article stresses how this chemical lowers manganese levels, which can result in many chronic diseases, including type 1 diabetes. And in addition, the article points out that type 1 diabetes in children is also associated with a decrease in the good bacteria, lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, and an increase in the bad bacteria, clostridium, in the gut. Hmm. These are the exact same pathologies that are also found in the gut bacteria from poultry that's fed Roundup Ready feed. Oh, wow. And Yeah, and that reinforces the fact that you should try to only eat organic, pasture-raised chicken and eggs. Right. And there's a graph in this article that shows the increased incidence of diabetes in the U.S. is strongly correlated with glyphosate usage on corn and soy. Okay. So, you know, so in, a, in addition to avoiding GMO foods, especially corn and soy, as well as chicken and eggs that are not organic and pasture-raised it would be wise to also supplement with probiotics that contain large numbers of many strains of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium bacteria. Okay. And also to reduce the potential for gut inflammation leading to leaky gut and autoimmune disease potential. then following an anti-inflammatory diet approach is also highly recommended with the plant paradox being our absolute favorite. Right. Another thing that is related to this is to avoid feeding infants and children cereal. Mm -hmm. Most pediatricians recommend introducing cereal to infants at just four to six months of age. Mm -hmm. And we've learned that grains are a primary source of inflammation in previous podcasts. And there's also evidence that infants fed cereal also have an increased risk of type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. So vegetable sources of carbs are a much better option. You know, in addition, going back to the glyphosate again, the Environmental Working Group published new data last month showing extremely high glyphosate levels in oat-based cereals like Cheerios and Quaker Oats. Ah, uh, okay. And if you remember, I shared this video on my Facebook page, so we can include this link in our podcast notes too. All right. And then the other thing that's really neat is about breastfeeding. So breastfeeding babies is very important for two reasons when it comes to type 1 diabetes. What's that? What's that? Bottle-fed babies tend to grow faster by gaining a lot of weight in their first year of life, and this can increase their risk of type 1 diabetes. Okay. It's best to try to breastfeed as long as possible. I mean, I know people that have uh, breastfed their kids up to like age four. Right. And then giving babies pasteurized milk during their first year in life may also increase a child's risk of type 1 diabetes. Now, does it matter what type of milk or is it just any pasteurized milk? It's any pasteurized milk, but again, going back to the plant paradox, the ones that create more inflammation, you want to avoid those altogether. I would. Okay. Good point. So now, the only potential workable treatment, we just went over prevention. Now uh-huh. we're on to treatment. Uh-huh. The only potential workable treatment to cure, and I know this is a strong word, but to cure type 1 diabetes with research to back it up is stem cell therapy. Uh-huh. So since there are many different types of stem cells, as well as stem cell sources out there, Mm -hmm. I would definitely research this thoroughly and get precise clinical statistics from whoever you choose. You should definitely work with someone who's had a number of successful cases and uses the appropriate type of stem cells
0: for this particular condition. Okay. Just a little warning there. Absolutely. Because a lot of people are getting into stem cell therapy recently in fact i did a podcast episode out here with a doctor who is an osteopath who does stem cell therapy and he got into it to help his mother-in-law who had a very serious condition and he knew quite a bit about it and he said yeah it's not just the doctor but it's where they get their supplies from and there was quite a few questions that he said are important to ask yes all right so that's for type 1 diabetes Now, are there any ways to prevent type 2 diabetes?
1: Yes. And obviously, there are risk factors that you can't control, like your age or family's medical history. So then you can work on the various things that you can actually control. Okay. So these include being overweight or obese. There are actually people who aren't overweight or obese who also have type 2 diabetes. But added pounds does put you at a higher risk. Right. And in fact, there's one study that shows that being overweight or obese is the single most important thing that predicts whether someone would get diabetes or not. Mm -hmm. And that study also showed that exercising 30 minutes a day for five days a week helped to prevent diabetes. Dietary choices are at the top of the list as far as preventing diabetes. And typical medical recommendations include, again, a low-fat diet, high in fiber, it's also low in animal protein and refined carbohydrates and high in fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, and beans. All right. Other common sense recommendations include limiting processed foods, alcohol intake, quitting smoking, and controlling blood pressure. Okay. And medical professionals sometimes also recommend preventive drugs for people high at risk for diabetes, such as people with prediabetes, which we're going to go over in a little bit. Okay. So to back this up, one study showed that a 31% improvement in preventing diabetes by taking the drug metformin along with lifestyle and dietary changes occurred.
0: That's great. Mm -hmm. All right. But if we don't want to go in that direction with the drugs, are there any natural or alternative treatments that have been effective in controlling or even possibly reversing type 2 diabetes? Well, we haven't
1: talked about sleep yet, so quality sleep uh, needs to be a priority because insulin sensitivity decreases rapidly and raises the risk for diabetes when you're not getting enough quality sleep. Okay. And there's quite a list of effective supplements, so I'll summarize the ones that have tested out the best. Mm -hmm. In addition to vitamin D and probiotics, which we went over earlier with type 1 diabetes, there's chromium picolinate taken along with vanadium that has been shown in studies to help blood sugar control in diabetics. Right. And zinc and magnesium levels are extremely low in our soil globally, so it's vital to supplement with them since they're also critical for healthy blood sugar metabolism. Okay. Some studies show that cinnamon may help lower blood sugar and fight diabetes by imitating the effects of insulin and increasing glucose transport into the cells. Right. There's an Ayurvedic herb called Gymnema sylvestri. And this is also tested well in studies showing it can lower high blood sugar levels. All right. And a few other things, some extracts of bitter melon, blueberry fruit, and maitake mushroom have also been found to be helpful with blood sugar control. Okay. And then this is a neat one. Alpha lipoic acid can enhance the body's ability to use its own insulin to lower blood sugar in people with type 2 diabetes, and it may help reduce the symptoms of peripheral neuropathy which is nerve damage that can be caused by diabetes. That's great. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, anti-inflammatory diets, especially the plant paradox. Dr. Gundry goes over diabetes quite often in his book and has excellent success stories of patients that no
0: longer have diabetes by following his program. That's great. So if people are interested, they should get that book, The Plant Paradox, and read through it. Now, are there any other blood sugar-related conditions that can affect people? Oh, yeah. Okay, what are they? So there's two other types of diabetes,
1: and one of them is gestational diabetes. Mm -hmm. And this is a type of diabetes that only occurs during pregnancy. Right. And it typically develops between the 24th and 28th weeks of pregnancy. And in most cases, there are actually no symptoms. Really? So how do they know that they have it? It's usually spotted on a blood test. And on average, about 7% of pregnant women develop this. Okay. The other type of diabetes is called prediabetes. Mhm. And this is a condition in which your blood sugar is higher than normal but not high enough to be considered full-blown diabetes. Okay. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as of 2015, 84.1 million American adults have prediabetes. Hmm. So that's just a little over a third of the population or 33.9%. Okay. So Fasting blood sugar levels that range from 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter qualify as pre-diabetes. So that means fasting blood sugar levels of 126 or higher indicate full-blown diabetes. Okay. Now, this is wild. Only 11.9% of the people who actually have this actually know that they have it. Mm-hmm. So the easiest way to find out is to do a simple, quick online test. And we'll leave a link for this. It's at doihaveprediabetes.org. Mm-hmm. And I actually heard this through a radio commercial in which they ask you a series of questions. And if you raise five fingers or more, then you probably have prediabetes. Okay. So they actually have a test that you can do on there. All right. Simple. All right. Another type of blood sugar condition is hypoglycemia. Right. Which probably most people have heard of. Yeah. So this is the other end of the spectrum. This is when your blood sugar levels crash and go below 70. Mm -hmm. And this is a relatively rare condition in the general population, but it's ironically actually very common in type one diabetics. And we'll go over why that is in just a little bit. Okay. And then there's another condition called metabolic syndrome, also known as syndrome X. This is a group of five risk factors that increase the likelihood of developing heart disease, diabetes, and stroke. Mm -hmm. So these five factors are, one, increased blood pressure, either greater than 130 over 85, or they're actually already using hypertension medication. Okay. High blood sugar levels over 100. Mm -hmm. Excess fat around the waist. So for men, it would be... Their waist is 40 inches or larger, and in women, 35 inches or larger. Okay. The fourth one is high triglyceride levels. So they're either 150 milligrams per deciliter or higher, or the fact that they're using a cholesterol-lowering medication like a statin drug. All right. So those are the syndrome X, or what was it called? Metabolic syndrome or syndrome X. Okay. And there's actually one more. All right. And that's low levels of good cholesterol or HDL. So for men, it's less than 40 milligrams per deciliter. For women, it's less than 50. Or again, they're using a cholesterol medicine.
0: Okay. So those are some of the other blood sugar-related conditions. What what causes these? Going back to gestational diabetes, uh, during pregnancy, the
1: placenta, which connects the baby to the mother's blood supply, produces various hormones, most of which actually impair the action of insulin. Hmm. So in the last half of pregnancy, as the baby grows, more and more of these hormones are produced. So a modest rise in blood sugar after meals is normal during pregnancy, but when the levels rise too high, then the woman is diagnosed with uh, gestational diabetes, and this now creates concern for the growth and development of the baby. Right. Gestational diabetes can start sometimes as early as the 20th week, but generally not until later, like again, between the 24th and 28th. Okay. And risk factors for gestational diabetes include being overweight, having relatives with diabetes, and having had diabetes in a previous pregnancy. Ah, okay. So now pre-diabetes. Most references give the same causes as diabetes type 2, which again are primarily due to being fat and lazy. Mm Mm-hmm. I would again defer to David Sparrow's 10 environmental causes of type 2 diabetes as being a more complete list. Great. One thing I would like to add about fat, and that is the more fatty tissue that someone has, the less sensitive to glucose and more resistant to insulin their cells become. So you want to get your BMIs down to lower levels, body mass index. Okay. Now, hypoglycemia, there's actually two types. There's diabetic hypoglycemia and non-diabetic hypoglycemia. Uh-huh. So Let's cover diabetic hypoglycemia first. Okay. Now, this is much more common than non-diabetic hypoglycemia. And in diabetics, this occurs when there's too much insulin and not enough sugar in the blood, causing the blood sugar to drop below 70. Right. And the most common reason is due to taking too much insulin or other diabetes medications. Really? Yeah. In other words, you're overcorrecting and causing the blood sugar to fall much lower than normal. So in diabetics, it can also be caused by skipping a meal or exercising harder than usual. Mm. And if this is left untreated, it can lead to seizures and a loss of consciousness, which are obviously, you know, medical emergencies. Absolutely. So I thought it would be smart to give some early warning signs and symptoms just in case, you know, somebody could potentially go through this. So... They include shakiness, dizziness, sweating, hunger, irritability, moodiness, anxiety, headaches. Okay. And it can also happen at night while you sleep. And typical signs and symptoms include damp sheets or bedcloths due to perspiration, Mm -hmm. nightmares, and tiredness, irritability, or confusion upon waking. Okay. Okay. So the standard medical handling for this is to take glucose tablets or drink fruit juice to quickly raise the blood sugar into a normal range. Right. Now, non-diabetic hypoglycemia can be broken down into two categories. There's what's called reactive hypoglycemia, which usually happens within a few hours after you've eaten and comes from having too much insulin in your blood. Mm -hmm. So this can be due to having already high blood sugar levels like prediabetes or being more likely to have diabetes. Okay, could actually result from having a stomach surgery, mm-hmm. and there's also rare enzyme defects in the body, so it's a genetic type thing that can occur for this. Okay, now fasting hypoglycemia is the other type, and this is normally linked to a medicine or a disease, so it can be caused by medicines such as aspirin and sulfa drugs, mm-hmm. excessive alcohol use, mm-hmm. diseases of the liver, kidney, heart, and pancreas. Okay low levels of various hormones, and even due to certain tumors in the body. Mm. Now, while we're on the subject of hypoglycemia, I thought I would share a little gem from way back in the day. Okay. So remember when we were little and mom and dad did their best to feed us healthy meals and give us supplements well before that was fashionable? Right. So as you know, our parents were basically self-taught, and one of their mentors was Adele Davis, who wrote four natural health books between 1947 and 1965. Right. So her third book, Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit, Mm -hmm. was written in 1954, and I actually have their copy right here in front of me. Yep. And they bought it. This is amazing. They bought it at Revco Drugstore and paid a whopping 15 cents because the price tag is still on it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Now, my favorite chapter in this book is chapter two, Breakfast Gets the Day's Work Done. Mm-hmm. And in this chapter, she describes hypoglycemia in detail and how it affects the body and especially stresses the importance of eating a healthy breakfast since it sets up the rest of the day, especially since setting the tone for one's blood sugar, or whether it'll be stable or not. Mm-hmm. So what really caught my eye was a study that she included that was published in 1949 by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I wanted to share this with everyone because there are two key points from this. Okay. One is pretty much common knowledge, but the other one is pretty shocking when I first saw it because it involves a food that has been traditionally touted for its heart and colon benefits.
0: All right. Tell us about it. So there were
1: 200 volunteers that ate various types of breakfasts. And each individual's blood sugar was determined before the meal and hourly for three hours afterward. So after black coffee alone, the the blood sugar decreased and the volunteers experienced lassitude, which is a state of physical or mental weariness or lack of energy, Mm -hmm. as well as irritability, nervousness, hunger, fatigue, exhaustion, and headaches. And then the symptoms became progressively worse as the morning wore on. Okay. Okay. So two donuts and coffee with sugar and cream were tested, and they caused a rapid rise in blood sugar, but the amount fell within an hour to a low level, again, resulting in inefficiency and fatigue. hmm Then a basic breakfast was selected because it was typical of the morning meal eaten by millions of Americans. Okay. So this was a glass of orange juice, two strips of bacon, toast, jam, and coffee with cream and sugar. hmm So this time, the blood sugar rose rapidly, but fell far below the pre-breakfast level within an hour and remained below normal until lunchtime. Wow. Then the next breakfast was the same except for the addition of a packaged cereal. Again, the blood sugar rose, fell quickly, and remained below normal all morning. Okay. So here's the shocker. A fifth breakfast was the basic one plus oatmeal, and that was served with sugar and milk. The blood sugar rose rapidly, but fell more quickly and to a lower level than after any other breakfast studied. Oh, that's funny. I know. It's heart healthy. It's great for your colon. But that one caused the biggest crash in people's blood sugar. Wow! I know. So then eight ounces of whole milk fortified with two and a half tablespoons of powdered skim milk was drunk with the basic breakfast of orange juice, bacon, toast, jam, and coffee. Mm -hmm. After this meal, the blood sugar rose above normal and stayed at approximately 120 milligrams throughout the morning with unusual well-being experienced. Hmm. And then two eggs were then served instead of fortified milk. Again, a high level of efficiency was maintained. Because there's more protein. That's right. The bottom line was protein. Mm -hmm. And that's what she stresses in that chapter is every meal you should be eating protein, especially breakfast. Right. And that will keep your blood sugar levels balanced. Yep. All right. uh, The last one I wanted to cover is metabolic syndrome again. Mm Mm-hmm. And the primary causes, again, according to experts, are being fat and lazy. And again, I'd like to refer back to the more complete list compiled by David Sparrow. So I'll repeat this again. Okay. And that is refined foods, genetics, intestinal bacteria imbalance, poor physical conditioning, stress, trauma, fat in the wrong places, poor sleep, environmental chemicals, and insulin deficiency.
0: All right. So those are the various causes of these other blood sugar conditions that are different than diabetes. Now, what have you been finding to be effective in either preventing these or in treating them? Well, getting back to gestational
1: diabetes, as far as prevention, there are two things a woman can do, according to an article written in June of 2017 that looked at various studies on this topic. Mm Mm-hmm. The first is dietary, but studies show that this only works in women who are overweight or obese. So the study showed that if they did change their diet, then six out of 100 women were diagnosed with gestational diabetes. But if they didn't change their diet, then 16 out of 100 women were diagnosed with gestational diabetes. So that's a difference of 10 out of 100. That's quite
0: a bit. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, their basic dietary recommendations included uh, cutting down on carbohydrates while still getting enough fiber and eating three not-too-big main meals and two to three smaller meals per day. Mm. I mean, that would also be a good thing for hypoglycemia, getting a constant supply of food so your blood sugar doesn't crash. Absolutely. And the other thing recommended for preventing gestational diabetes is exercise because women who exercise more are less likely to develop it. And they recommended doing at least 30 minutes of strenuous activity three to four times a week, including swimming, cycling, and brisk walking. Okay. So the typical medical treatment for gestational diabetes, since this can hurt both the mother and baby, is to immediately jump on it once it's diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so for one, they closely monitor blood sugar, which is typically checked before a meal and then one hour after, as well as two hours after a meal. Okay. Okay. And again, you know, improving one's diet and getting enough exercise are recommended. And if diet and exercise don't do the job, then insulin injections may need to be given. And this happens about 10 to 20% of women with gestational diabetes.
0: And it's just during that period of time. This is not something that continues past the pregnancy. That's correct. And in addition, there's close monitoring of the baby's
1: growth and development with repeated ultrasounds or other tests. Okay. Now, as far as alternative treatment, um, this is definitely something that you should absolutely not do unless it's approved by your obstetrician or midwife. Okay. So some things, though, that have been proven in studies to help include vitamin D. Uh, We already covered the fact that pregnant women with low vitamin D levels increases the risk of newborns developing type 1 diabetes, but there's also studies showing that women who are deficient in vitamin D are also more likely to develop gestational diabetes themselves.
0: Okay. So vitamin D is very important then. Oh, yeah. And then there's magnesium.
1: Um, One study had pregnant women with gestational diabetes taking 250 milligrams of magnesium daily for six weeks. And this significantly improved blood sugar levels and reduced markers of inflammation and cell damage. Okay. As far as prediabetes, for prevention, medical treatment, and alternative treatment, the same things that we went over for type 2 diabetes applies to this also. All right. And of course, the same applies for metabolic syndrome, but because this is a pretty involved syndrome affecting many body systems, I recommend working with a nutrition-oriented doctor, especially one who's trained in functional or orthomolecular medicine. Mm -hmm. And these approaches aim to identify the root causes of disease and restore balance in the body with nutrition and lifestyle changes. Okay. Okay. Now, hypoglycemia, prevention and medical treatment with diabetic hypoglycemia, we already went over how to prevent and treat it. Mm-hmm. And one important thing for non-diabetic hypoglycemia is if you have a propensity for this, and especially if you've tested below 70 on your fasting glucose blood work, then I would be leery of doing the new diet craze, intermittent fasting, in which you go long periods of time without eating. Right. This Obviously, could be a recipe for disaster. So, I'd pass on this until you can show on fasting blood sugar that normal for you is well above 70. Yeah, that's perfectly sensible. And then, for alternative treatments for hypoglycemia, going back again to Adele Davis, the key to preventing non diabetic or even diabetic hypoglycemia is to make sure you eat enough protein with each meal, especially breakfast. So, again, protein stabilizes your blood sugar by keeping it in a healthier range and along with fiber. It acts like a buffer to keep it from fluctuating too high and too low.
0: Okay. The other thing I'll add to that, and I think this might have been from Gundry, is adequate amounts of fat. Oh, yeah. The because the thing is, is one, it's more satisfying, but it also helps you go longer periods of time because your body takes a longer time to break down the fat. That's right. Let's not neglect the fat either. Right. Okay. Okay. So is there anything else you'd like to say before we end? Sure.
1: I, you know, I recommend that everyone listens or re-listens to our previous podcast trio on sugar, which was number eight, artificial sweeteners, number 12, and soft drinks, number 14, since they're directly related to this topic. Absolutely. Now, no matter what type of blood sugar handling condition that you or someone that you know suffers from, controlling dietary sugar is at the top of the list when it comes to handling these conditions. And if you recall, not only did we cover the fact that artificial sweeteners are a poor alternative for sugar for numerous reasons, we also gave healthy alternatives that
0: are acceptable even for people with diabetes. That's correct. Yes, Stevia works whether you've got diabetes or not.
1: That's right.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, very good information, Steve. Thank you. And hopefully, this will be helpful to people out there that have dealt with any kind of blood sugar problems. One of the things that I forgot to mention I was thinking about when you were talking about chromium picolinate is that if you have children and they're going to a birthday party and they don't eat sugar very often, you'll find that they come back and are just wild as can be. And that's because the rapid spike in the blood sugar levels and then the crash afterwards. And chromium picolinate is a good thing to give them so that that spiking and crashing doesn't occur because it keeps the stability there. I'm not sure whether you'd give it to them before they went over there or have them take it when they're going to have it. Do you know as far as the best time for them to take it? Well, since
1: chromium is a mineral and minerals get absorbed better with food in meals, I would give it to them while they're eating. Okay. and Then of course, make sure they eat some type of protein to balance that, you know, large amount of sugar they're getting and to drink lots of water too to dilute it.
0: Yeah, but most of the time, if the kid's going off to a birthday party, you're not going to be able to control any of that other stuff. So, you'd probably give them the chromium before they took off. Okay. So, that's an important thing for people to know. So, thanks again for that information. Next week, we're going to go into a topic we had mentioned earlier, and that has to do with anaphylactic shock and the drug that's used. Well, I don't know if I'd call it a drug, it's actually a hormone that's produced by the body that you can get and keep with you in case there's the potential of that happening. But we're going to talk about anaphylactic shock, which is a severe allergic reaction that people can have sometimes for shellfish if they're allergic to it, or peanuts, or even insect bites. So that's next week's topic. Sounds shocking. Yes, it is. All right. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.